Welcome to Christian Life Church Podcast. Please subscribe to our channel. I don't know if I was born with this particular issue or indeed it's developed through time or life experience, but I've always had the tendency to view the world from a slightly adjunct position. Maybe it was growing up um, in an environment where as a, a, a child that came from a traveling family, uh, we were always considered to be outcasts or different or strange. But from the, the earliest viewpoint of my life, I think I have been an observer. I'm the kind of person that watches the world around me. Is there anybody else like that? You know, if I pull up at the traffic lights, I can't help myself. If there's a car accident on the motorway, I have to slow down. Is there anybody else like me? Come on, tell the truth. I'm just, I suppose you could call it a spiritual virtue or I'm just nosy. I'm not quite sure which it is, but um, it's always caused me to look at the world in, in a desire, I suppose, to understand or, or experience the more of life. And um, I believe that in many, many ways throughout my childhood, God was preparing me for the things that he had for me. Now, interestingly enough, if you go back to the Old Testament, you'll find that those who carried a prophetic gift in God never really lived at the center of the culture. In fact, it was to God that glory was given because they either could not or would not live at the center of the established culture. Now, I believe that when you live at the center of an established culture, you have an invested interest in that culture continuing for your benefit. It's like turkeys voting for Christmas to suggest that in, in any culture, you would make changes that were detrimental to yourself. And as you walk through the Old Testament, you see time after time after time, that those who have been commissioned and called by God to have a prophetic viewpoint of the world did not live at the center of the cultures in which they spoke. In fact, they lived on the margins. They lived on the parameters of that culture. And when you live on the parameters of a culture, you have a viewpoint that's very different. In fact, you have a clarity about that culture that those within the culture cannot see and could never really truly uh, embrace if you were to correct it or indeed seek to bring some kind of insight to it. And so to carry any form of prophetic gift, I think, is to live on the margins of culture and to be available, therefore, not to be confined by the culture you speak to, but to be defined by the culture of heaven here on earth. And I think for many, many reasons, what I'm about to say to you will offer you some insight into that kind of perspective. I believe that we're standing at a moment in the church where God wants us to stop seeing things the way we think they are and start seeing things the way they truly are. I think it's time for the church to wake up. It's time for the church to see what is real and what isn't real about this world in which we're living in. And it's time for us as God's people to not live confined or defined by a culture in which we are in context but actually living from a viewpoint, I think it's a point, a viewpoint of advantage that sees things from a very, very different perspective. And that's why this particular series is important to us because we're living in a world where everybody wants the advantage. And actually, the truth is that a disadvantage 
is more to your advantage than any advantage you could have. In the economy of God, the disadvantage is more to your advantage than any advantage you could have. Now, I've done a little research into the background of this particular concept, the advantage of disadvantage, and statistics prove that people who are raised in a disadvantaged way are often more highly achieving than those who were raised in comfort. There's nothing like a little adversity to bring out the best, and sadly sometimes the worst, in the human soul. Statistics prove that people who are living with a medical condition in their childhood often have to strive and work harder for engagement and therefore develop all manner of skills to be able to communicate and interact with people. They are more highly intuitive and greatly more sensitive than people who lived in a situation where there were no complex or difficult needs. Now, you and I know that this world would love the advantage. Everybody wants a heads up on everything, but actually in the economy of heaven, any disadvantage is to the advantage of God. And God, listen to this scripture, takes the foolish things of this world and uses them to confound the wisdom of man. So instead of trying to gain the advantage, my hope is through this series that you would actually appreciate your disadvantage. And you would surrender your disadvantage to God and allow him to do something exceptional through it. Last week we looked at the story of David and Goliath. By anybody's account, David was a young man that appeared to have great disadvantages in the battle against Goliath. He wasn't tall, he wasn't strong, he didn't have all the attributes and experiences of warfare. But actually as we thought together and conversed together, we realized that the very thing that looked like a disadvantage became David's advantage. And as a result of it, he took down the giant. You see, to be able to live like that, you need to see the world differently. In everybody's eyes, everybody thought Goliath was a sure bet. Wasn't it Goliath that had many, many years of practice in warfare, many successes? Wasn't it Goliath that was nearly seven foot tall? Wasn't it Goliath who was renowned? Wasn't his reputation something that preceded him? And if we're not careful as Christians, we can believe the hype of the enemy and we can believe all the propaganda that he places around our lives and never rise to the occasion and say, God, greater are you who are in me than anything that comes against me. Somebody say amen to that. But David did not buy into the hype of Goliath. In fact, he saw through Goliath and he insisted that he operate in this battle on his terms, not on the terms of his enemy. So we realize that David's disadvantage gave him the advantage, but it required him to see things differently and to respond unconventionally. The second thing we learned last week is this, is giants aren't always what we think they are. You see, the story behind the story is that Goliath, this great, tall, hirsute, and strong warrior, actually had a medical condition. And that medical condition was that he had a benign tumor on his pituitary gland. And that caused him to have excessive growth hormone in his body, which made him grow exceptionally tall. That's the truth behind the truth. That's the reality of the story. But actually, alongside that spurt of growth hormone that caused Goliath to grow exceptionally tall 
was a partial blindness problem because as a result of that pituitary gland with the benign tumor on it, Goliath could not see things very clearly. And if you were here last week, there were all kinds of nuances that tell us this. Whenever Goliath came to warfare with David, he had to be guided down to the valley because he could not see his way down himself. The second thing is this. He tells David to come to him because he can't get to David. His sight was limited. It was impaired. And thirdly, whenever David lifts his staff, which is the rod he used as a shepherd in the, the desert places, Goliath says, why do you shake your sticks at me like I am a dog? He saw two when there was only one. You see, this year I want to tell you, and I'm saying this provocatively because I need to, there are giants that are going to come into your life, but they're not what you think they are. And the very thing that makes them look strong is the very thing that God will use in your life to take them down. Someone say amen to that. Third thing we recognize is this, that being the underdog can actually really transform your life. I don't know if you've been watching The Apprentice I have a friend, she's never off the internet talking about The Apprentice. I think she's an avid follower of that. But have you noticed that it's not the usual culprits that win? Have you noticed that the slick ones often get exposed for being fake ones? Talk to me. Have you noticed that the ones that think they're all it find out that they're not really that at all? You see, often I think when you look at those programs, you realize that perceived strength or acumen or ability can never really be judged from the outside. Only God knows a heart. Only God knows a person. And when I look at this story, I realize that David may not look like much, but actually in the economy of God, he did much. And as he rises to this moment, all kinds of things open up to him. He was clearly considered the underdog. But when underdogs take down giants, things change. Often doors open. Often opportunities are created. And we begin to think differently. And that's the whole concept of this particular narrative. I think we need to think differently. It would appear to me that God thinks differently to you and to me. Prophet Isaiah puts it this way, that his thoughts are not our thoughts and his ways are not our ways. And of course, we know that Isaiah is not highlighting any sense of inferiority in God. He's simply suggesting that God sees the end before the beginning and knows every part of the story even before it plays itself out. God's perspective has to become our perspective if we're going to slay giants. God's perspective has to become my viewpoint of the world in which I live in. Otherwise, I'm going to be paralyzed by the culture around me. God's perspective, God's view of my world has to become my view of my world. And you see, that's why the Apostle Paul in Romans 12 writes these words, verses 1 to 2. He says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. And look at this phrase in verse 2. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. And the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Rome is saying, 
you have a culture that looks very real to you. You have a viewpoint of the world that has become adopted by you. You have concepts and paradigms and experiences that reinforce all of that so-called truth. But actually, the way God sees it is very different. It's not the way it truly appears. If he was to write it in a more local dialect for us, it would sound something like this. Christians, the world has lied to you. Don't be fooled by it anymore. Mercy has turned up in your world and it has rewritten the whole story. Or maybe he would put it this way to us. All that you see isn't real, you know. It's just smoke and mirrors. The real thing is God and what he says is always right. Or maybe he would be more provocative and write it this way. Come on, for goodness sake, stop falling for the nonsense. God is the only one who knows how all this works. Start seeing things from his perspective and you will live in his perfect will for your life. The Apostle Paul is telling us and reminding us that we have adopted and in fact embraced a culture that is lying to us about truth. He's telling us that the way it looks isn't the way it is. And while you may feel and while you may have experienced all these things because you live in this culture, mercy has come. God has turned up in our world and now everything changes. Everything is changing. Someone say amen for me. Now Jesus picks up this whole thought for us in his teachings on the Sermon on the Mount, which we'll come to in a few moments. He uses a phrase, a phrase I think that's very telling. He says this, you have heard it said. In other words, this looks real to you. In other words, this is a rehearsed reality and therefore it appears to have power and authority. You have heard it said. You have watched and you have seen how you think or believe things actually work. In other words, this, my friend, is not the truth. This, my friend, is not the real story. This, my friend, is not the reality here on earth. Let me give you an example of that. In the world in which we're living in, the church has become disadvantaged. Let's not pretend it hasn't. Let's not shy away from that reality because actually if we understood the power of disadvantage, we would embrace it wholeheartedly. But in our world, we are not considered to be of value. In society at large, the church is irrelevant. All kinds of things have hijacked and prioritized themselves over the truth and the reality of Jesus Christ. And the church appears to be irrelevant and indeed outside or out of step with culture and society. I say, hallelujah. That's the nonsense whenever we say we need to become relevant to our world. I do not want to be relevant to a world that is void of Jesus Christ. I don't mind how irrelevant I appear. In fact, I would say I'm going to write a paper on this one day, the irrelevance of relevance. For me to be relevant to society, I would have to embrace a whole manner of things and not just embrace them, agree with them, celebrate them and promote them. As a Christian, I cannot do that because while this looks real, it's not real. Come on, talk to me. While this looks like truth, it's not the truth. While this looks like a way, it's not the way. So we have a culture that in many, many ways has pushed the church to the margins of society. 
It's trying to erase all kinds of Christian values and virtues and truths. And you can believe anything you want. You can be a unicorn on Tuesday, half zebra, half man on Wednesday. And everyone will tip their cap and celebrate with you. But if you dare to have the audacity to say that you're a follower of Jesus Christ, people go, whoa, what kind of a freak? What kind of madness is that? New tolerance means that we're tolerant about everything but Christianity, but the truth of Jesus Christ. And this is the culture that you and I live in. So why, why, oh why, would I allow that culture to shape my viewpoint of the world? Why would I allow what the world tells me to be true to become my truth? It's so important that you wake up to that because without realizing it, I think so much of it has come into the church. Amen? When I first became a Christian... I would drive back through the night from the clubs I'd sing at and I would repent in the car. Oh, I repented of everything. Looking at somebody sideways, thinking a bad thought, lusting after this one or that one. And that was all before I got out of bed. It was a long day and a long drive. And I would repent because of this. Because I believed in my heart of hearts, I was fallen. I believed in my heart of hearts, I was broken. I believed in my heart of hearts, I was a sinner. And although I was saved by God's grace, I could not walk into any place where he abided without recognizing I was in deficit and he was the fullness thereof. And so consequently, I would get rid of anything and everything in my life. Can I tell you that that's not the way the church is now? We come into God's presence and we're carrying all kinds of attitudes and sin and disarray in our lives. And holiness seems a memory of the past. Or maybe a wish for the future whenever revival comes. But the Lord, our God, is holy and this is his house and we are his people. And he is the same yesterday, today, tomorrow and forever. And we cannot play with God. And if we do so, we do it at our peril. And here's the reason why we do. Because our world has permissioned all kinds of things. And we, without realizing, have subtly, subtly become attached to that kind of ideology. You know, people say all the time. You know, Simon, why do you make God sound so hard? Because God is not hard. God is love, but following him will cost you everything. If you're in this on the cheap, you are going to be bitterly disappointed. If you think you can have God on your terms, you're up the creek without a paddle. The apostle Paul writes it this way, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's not on your terms. It's on God's terms. God's terms cause salvation, not your terms. You did it on your terms, you plonker, and look how that turned out. Your terms will always lead to a, a, a difficult, broken outcome, but on God's terms, we get life, and we get life in all its fullness. Somebody wake up and say amen. amen. So the church of Jesus Christ would appear to have disadvantage. And I would say, hallelujah. Hallelujah. Because when I allow God in my disadvantage to awaken my soul to his perspective, what looks to the world like a disadvantage becomes an incredible advantage in the purposes of God. Jesus said, 
you have heard it said. In other words, there's a culture that exists. Don't buy into it. Don't align yourself with it. Don't think it's right. But I now say, I now say. In other words, I have a viewpoint that actually is true. I have a perspective that you need to have if you're going to live your life in all its fullness here on the earth. Now come with me please because we're about to enter into the world of Jesus and view it from his perspective. And you will be shocked as indeed these people were shocked when they began to hear how Jesus sees things. Matthew chapter 5. Verses 3 to 12. This is the perspective that's real and true. Not the one you and I have bought into. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. For they will be comforted. Say amen. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Do you look out in our world and think, how could that possibly be? It doesn't say blessed are the weak, it says blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure of heart. I love this one, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Are you catching the drift that Jesus sees things very differently? Completely the opposite, in fact, to the way we would see these realities in people's lives. Verse 11 Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of things against you because of me. In fact, when it happens, rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you, they will persecute you. I'm sure the Lord will bless his word as we read it together. You see... What we find ourselves here is a viewpoint that's so radically different from our own. As I read through the catalog of human disarray and discomfort, I can't help but realize that the paradigm to which I view the world is vastly different from the one in which God sees the world. And I have to ask myself the question, who could possibly be right? What could possibly be good about God allowing such things to be a blessing to people. How, when I look at these things, could I ever imagine that they could be a blessing to people? Having lived longer than 20 years myself, some of these things have happened to me personally. How could they possibly be viewed as something that's good for me? And yet, when Jesus speaks, he speaks into a culture that has already decided some things. And he says, you've heard it said, but I'm telling you, there is a higher place to view things from than your worldly life experience. It's from the perspective of God. Now, all of these, these wonderful truths, they start with this one phrase, and it really bothers me. It bothers me greatly, this phrase. 
In fact, it's been bothering me for days now. But I believe the reason why I find it so hard is probably because you can identify with me on this. To actually live like this seems impossible. And it's absolutely improbable if it's just left to me to try and do it. I can't live like this. I need the Spirit of God to do something in my heart and my life. So I'm starting with a disadvantage. I know I can't do this. I'm starting to embrace a disadvantage because I know when the world views people like this, they do not do it with acclaim. They do it with disdain. But this first verse, verse 3, is the key to unlocking all of these realities to us. And it simply says this, Blessed is the poor in spirit. And you can't help but ask yourself, what could possibly be blessed about being poor in spirit? How could that possibly be somewhere or something that God, when he views my life, considers valuable? And the reality for all of us in this room and those who are watching online, there is not one small, tiny part of you that wants this reality. In fact, you have done everything in your power to avoid it. And yet from God's perspective, it's the key that opens up all of the realities of how he views the world and how he engages with us in our pain and in our difficulty. What does it mean to be blessed? Well, the word that's used here means to have fullness. You're telling me, Simon, that if I'm poor in spirit, now remember it's saying in spirit, it's not saying physically. You know, I've met people who've got nothing, but they've got everything. And I've met people who've got everything, but they've got nothing. So to be poor is not just physical poverty, which could never, ever be something of great value to anyone. Who wants to be poor? Did you sign up for that when you came to Christ? God, make me pure. God, make me poor. God, make me a pastor. Did you sign up for that? <laughs> Nobody in their right mind wants to be poor. But there is a poverty far more disturbing and rewarding at the same time than just earthly poverty because whatever you have or don't have on this, on this life, one day it will be gone and so will you. And whatever that temporary discomfort was, it'll be long forgotten as you bask in the greatness and the glory of God. Whether you have had much or you have had little, you will not look back. You can only look up towards the Lamb of God who's seated on the throne and cry like everyone else does in heaven, holy, holy, holy is he. People often say to me, you know, will I remember my family? Do you know if you're in the presence of perfection, if you're in the reality of heaven, I don't think for one second you're looking over your shoulder at the brokenness of humanity. Your eyes spiritually, your whole being spiritually was created to behold him in his goodness and his glory. You will be besotted with Jesus forever and ever. And someone should say amen at that point. That's what heaven will look like. It'll just be this glorious, wonderful experience of the fullness of God. So whether you're living in the best house of the street or you haven't got a house, whatever you're going through in the practical sense today, I'm not making light of it. I've had little and I've had much. What I'm suggesting to you is 
at one point in your life when you leave this mortal coil, it will pass. But what you store up for yourself here on earth will travel with you to the eternal realities of heaven. Amen? And here's what you can store up for yourself, not just physical poverty. You can store up for yourself the reality, and it is a reality, that you and I are utterly poverty-stricken spiritually when it comes to our relationship with God. You came in this morning bankrupt. You came here this morning and you have nothing to give God. Nothing. If you don't own that truth, then you will be maligned by a lie. And that lie is this, that you were okay and a little damaged before you met Jesus. And salvation has just given you spiritual Botox to improve certain attributes of your human condition. No, my friend, you were a filthy, dirty, stinking, hallelujah, rotten singer, sin singer, sinner. <laughs> and you know what? Without Christ, that's still who you are. Don't you fool yourself into thinking you're anything better than that. And here, listen to my heart, without embracing that, without really embracing that truth, who needs a savior if you're not a sinner? Nobody. And we are all sinners and fallen short of the glory of God. Come on, wake up. Now I can put on my best clothes, and these are, by the way, my best clothes. Okay, don't judge me. This is, I think, from Marks and Spencers. When I was a kid, I dreamed at shopping at Marks and Spencers. I dreamed. That's where the posh people went. I am now one of them. <laughs> I am now one of them. And I bought black because apparently black makes you look slimmer. I think they're referring to some vortex in the heavenly realms. That's the only thing that could make me look slimmer. I forgot what I was saying. <laughs> oh, you're a filthy, <laughs> dirty, rotten, minging, mangy, pathetic sinner. Thanks for coming. We'll see you all next week. What Jesus is simply saying is this, unless, unless you see that, unless you see that, unless you know that, unless you embrace that truth, then you won't see the kingdom of heaven. Wow. Unless you come to terms with the fact, you see, we have this lie in the world. I'm going to just burst a bubble. This is the lie in our world that actually underneath it all, I'm good. You're not. Underneath it all, you're worse than we ever imagined. <laughs> I'm shocked that some of you are saved. <laughs> Flabbergasted that God could reach such broken, filthy, dirty, rotten sinners. And you should be shocked. If anyone should be shocked, it should be you that I am saved. But I am not saved because I am good. 
I am saved because I needed a Savior. And His name is Jesus Christ. I wholeheartedly want to live with clarity about my bankrupt spiritual state. I wholeheartedly want to remember that I can fool myself or fool the world, but when I stand before the God who sees all things, nothing is hidden and nothing is beyond his ability to reach. I want to remind myself that living in the reality of that truth that I am in many ways spiritually bankrupt opens up all kinds of possibilities to me. And it may look like a disadvantage from the outside, but when you see it from God's perspective, it's the starting point of everything that is good in our lives. Spiritual poverty is the pathway to spiritual fullness. It's a good thing for me to recognize my impoverished state. In fact, when I recognize my impoverished state, I am free. I am free to not pretend to anyone in this world that I'm anything more than I truly am. I am free to live outside of the confines of the culture of this world that thinks those who die with the most toys have won the race. When I step away from the culture in which I'm living and live from the perspective that God is offering and giving, I start to see there's hope for this broken soul. Because when God sees me, he does not despise me. He moves towards me. And while the world may reject me because I haven't got it all together and I'm not doing all the things that everybody else wants me to do to look like I'm better than I actually am, God sees me the way I am and he loves me too much to leave me the way I am. God sees me as I am. It's not a persona. I don't have to fake it. I don't have to pretend. I don't have to look like I've got it all together. God knows the reality of the truth of who I am and he wants me. And he comes to me, and he abides with me, and he values me. Come on, wake up. And he touches me, and he heals me. Why do you need healing if you don't think you are sick? My friend, you are really sick. And I'm not talking about this sick. You are really sick. Let me tell you something. This is going to be a shock to you. 98, if not 99% of the energy that drives your life is your ego. You do so much of what you do to appear to be better than you are. You combed your hair this morning. Because you want the world to think that's how you live when you're at home. I've seen some of you at home. And I'm not saying it's not pretty, but it's not pretty. <laughs> You've put on your makeup, gentlemen. <laughs> to ensure that you are rewarded for your good looks, charm, personality, and charisma. <sighs> the problem with the church, the problem with me, the problem with you, is so much of our lives is lived trying to appear to a world that we are better than we really are. You know, that's why people don't come to church. Because the place is full of people pretending they are better than they are. 
Someone said to me a couple of weeks ago, you know, I'm not good enough to come to church. I said, you are exactly right. They said, I'm a hypocrite. I said, come along. There's always room for one more. A few seats vacant. Come along. If I'm not a sinner, if I don't know how broken and damaged and poisonous my life can truly be, then I will never receive the benefits of salvation. I will always believe in my heart of hearts that I wasn't that bad and God just took a little bit of the edges off me. No, you were, still are without Jesus, the most heinous crime to humanity. And look who you're sitting next to. Another one. And another one. And another one. And, a, and the room is, I'm just keeping it real for you this morning. And another one. Now, here's the problem with this message. The problem with this message is, but Pastor Simon, you said God has great things for us. Yes, he does. Being a sinner and having an impoverished soul is not the opposite to having abundance. In fact, it's the beginning. When you recognize your need of God, you live very differently. When you're not faking it till you make it, you've got a lot of time in your hands to be honest with yourself. And you can say, ooh. Do the best thing you could do tomorrow. When you get up and you put your feet out on the side of the bed, just say, God, show me the way I really am. God, show me the way I really am. Not the way I pretend to be, not the way everyone thinks I am, not the way I've worked very hard at presenting to the world, but show me the way I really am. Do you know what? I guarantee you the Holy Spirit will be all over that. Why? Because his love has the power to transform and to change you. But until you come home to the truth of who you really are, you're playing. You're playing with that transformative power. You're manipulating that transformative power. You must let God be God and you play catch up. That's how this works. Blessed are those whose eyes have been opened enough by the Spirit to see the impoverished state of their soul. Blessed are those who've come to the recognition and realization that they are utterly spiritually bankrupt. Blessed are those who are not pretending in any which way before God that they are any more than they truly are but are trusting in the grace and the mercy and the benevolence and the kindness of a God who transforms anything that's submitted to his truth and reality. Blessed are those who are not living in Oprahville, where the world is a glossy place where I'm at the center of it, and I am my own special creation, and I'm living my life and I believe God's whole reason for existing is to give it to me abundantly. No. No. Blessed are those 
who've given up on pipe dreams and rainbows, who've come home to the truth as they look in the mirror of their soul and recognize that unless God does something, I have nothing to contribute. Now, for all of you high-powered, I'm going to be who I want to be people, this is not going to go down well. I'm not stupid. I've been around here a while. Okay? But I want to tell you something. I want to tell you a secret. Unless it's the Lord that's building your house, your vanity will be the thing that drives it. Thanks for coming. So what a disadvantage to have. And if it ever becomes apparent, doesn't it make you feel uncomfortable when people live like that? But let me tell you some things that that disadvantage gives you the advantage in. If you've got a pen, write them down. They may be of some interest or benefit to you. When I have nowhere else to go, no more songs to sing, no more things to say, no more people to impress, and no more lands to conquer. And I become completely and utterly conscious of my own need before God. I find myself wanting him and needing him far more than I ever did before. I'll ask you the question. It's very obvious. When do you pray and call out to God more? When everything's going well or when things are going badly? Have you noticed that the circumstances of your life either cause you to draw nearer to God out of need or they cause you to be slightly distanced from God because of greed? It's very easy for us to fool ourselves and think that God is some kind of Father Christmas who gives us handout. But the reality is that God is a father who delights in you. And like any good father, he knows you. He knows you. And he loves you. And he has power to help you. Scriptures say, come to me, all of you who are burdened, all of you who are tired. Hello? Are faking it till you make it. Come to me. All of you who are burdened and heavy laden, and it's a heavy, heavy thing to try and live a life that's not conscious of your own brokenness. It's a heavy, heavy thing. Come to me, all of you who are burdened and heavy laden, and listen to the promise. I will, I will give you rest. I will give you rest. I will give you a peace. I will give you my presence. I will give you a place to live in and to live from that will cause your life to become all that it can. So here are the advantages of having the disadvantage, according to the world's economy, of a soul that really is impoverished, a poor, wretched soul. The first one is the presence of God. In Romans 10, verse 13, it says, Those who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And when you face yourself in the mirror 
and there's nowhere else to go or no one else to turn to, I guarantee you, almost in a compulsive way, you will cry out to God. You will cry out for God. There's nothing like seeing ourselves as we truly are that causes us to turn our hearts towards the one as he truly is. It's a bit like a winter's morning and everything's bleak and the sun begins to lift itself in the sky. In the natural, we turn our face towards it. When we are impoverished and living in the reality of our brokenness, we lift our face towards his goodness. Our hearts are drawn towards him. He becomes compelling to us. And I think the Apostle Peter writes it the, this way. He says, where else can I go? Only you, only you, Jesus, have the answers. Only you, Jesus, are the solution. Only you, Jesus, can be medicine to my broken disarrayed, and in many ways, sometimes slightly disgusting heart. James 4 verse 8 says this to those who draw near to God. It says, draw near to God and look at the promise. He will draw near to you. There's nothing like the disadvantage of knowing just how impoverished your soul is to attract the presence and the person of God. And there you were all this time thinking that your successes were the things that drew his attention. He is not an earthly father that rewards you for what you've done. He's a heavenly father who rewards you in spite of what you've done. You are living under the gaze of a God who already loves you perfectly. There's nothing you can do to add to that, and there's nothing you can do to take away from that. Oh, come on. Some of you get off the cross. We need the wood today. We need the wood today. It's time to stop doing the things we keep doing because they're not working. And When you come to that place of saying, God, I need you. I need you more, Lord. I need you more than yesterday. God, I need you to get out of bed. God, I need you to be a husband. God, I need you to be a father. God, I need you on the bus. I hate the bus. I believed for a Mercedes and you gave me the number 11. God, God, I need you. God, at work, I need you. I need you, God. I need you. I can't do this job without you. I need you, Jesus. Will you be with me? Will you come with me? Will you stay with me? God, I can't do church. God, I can't go amongst these people. They think I'm something I'm not. God, I need you. God, I can't lead a meeting. How do I know how to lead a meeting? This is so beyond me. God, I need you. When you cry out to God in your need, when you come to God in your brokenness, when you step towards Him and say, Father, be the Father... I hope you will be, his presence will come. And it's like the sun on a bewildered heart opening up and creating life. You cannot get enough of his presence, but you can't feel his presence when your presence is greater than his. You must decrease so that he can increase. Come on, I'm preaching to the choir here. You must decrease so that he can increase. Not only when we come to the realization that our souls are impoverished, that we can experience the presence of God. He draws near to the broken. He's there for the weary. He's in the midst of those who are in anarchy and difficulty. But the second thing we do and we experience is this, is the provision of God. 
In his presence there is provision. James 14 verse 17 says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. In other words, the disadvantage of a soul that's impoverished turns to an advantage as the kingdom comes. And it says of this kingdom, this is what this kingdom looks like. Righteousness. Let me pause there for a moment. Righteousness is the reality of the nature and the character and the person of God abiding and living and presiding in your life. Isn't that what we keep praying for? Isn't that what we keep asking for? Isn't that the intent of our heart when we gather? God, make me like you. Isn't that the song? Isn't that the worship? Isn't that the preach? God, make me more like you. But you know, the gateway to opening up that provision is recognizing that you are in desperate need of God. I wish I could labor this or say this or explain this to you more profoundly. But over and over and over again in the scriptures, I find this incredible pattern happening. And it's simply this, that until we come to terms with the fact that we have no hope but God, we have no hope. That's the truth. Our hope cannot be in us. It cannot be in this. Talk to me. Our hope cannot be in our culture. It's not even in our government. And sadly, with all that we've heard, it's definitely not in our monarchy. Our hope can only be rewarded when it's submitted in humility to the king of glory. Only he can give beauty for ashes. But I need to first recognize I am ashes. How can he give beauty to something that thinks it has beauty? I need to come in my impoverished state and say, God, do for me what no man or words could ever do for me. Build my life and make it like you. So we have his presence and we have his provision. And that provision is righteousness, which we're all after. Peace, which is not a feeling, but the governance of the reality of his kingdom here on earth. And joy, joy, joy. That overwhelming sense. It is well with my soul. That's joy. It is well with me. Philippians 4, regarding the provision of God, says this in verse 19. And my God... And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory. Look at the connection, please, please read the scriptures. My God will meet all your needs. If you've learned nothing about the kingdom of heaven, learn this. That you and I need to become the neediest people on the planet. As we recognize our need more and more, my God, your God, will supply all your needs. 
You don't have your needs met because you have not submitted them or recognized them or you've done everything in your power to avoid them. I went to a church a number of years ago. This lady asked me to speak at a church. It was in Canada, actually. And it was the church that Justin Bieber came from. He wasn't there. Well, if he was, he was probably knee-high. And in the moments that leading over this weekend, I had this thought, and this thought came to me, and sometimes it does occur to me repeatedly, that Christians, for all kinds of reasons, have all kinds of money in all kinds of bank accounts. Now, an innocent thought, my thought was, why? Why? Why do we do that? And it occurred to me that the answer would be, we're saving for a rainy day. In other words, just in case life gets difficult, Hear me out before you throw something. I'm going to make sure that I'm taken care of. I've got really good and bad news for you. It's already raining. It's raining. And here's the interesting thing. Not long after that particular statement to the church about storing things up here on earth to prevent, out of fear, any sense of loss or lack. Can you hear the words I'm using? I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying I'm not sure what it is, really. I'm not sure we're thinking clearly. The pastor was really upset with me and fell out with me. Not in the meeting, after the meeting. I mean, really fell out with me. And uh, I could never quite get my head around it because I didn't think it was... I mean, I've said worse things here. <laughs> and you know that. I thought, well, what's so wrong about that? I just wanted people to think a little bit about it. And she said, I have been training my children to save their money. And I looked at her and I said to her with just absolute brokenness, I'm sorry if you think I'm being offensive, but which is more offensive? That you're teaching your children, don't throw anything, to circumvent problems by their own human resources and you're not teaching them to trust God with all their heart and lean not on our understanding. Now, am I propagating carelessness? No. But, you see this thing here where it says, my God will meet all your needs. Can I ask you why you work so hard in your own strength and ability not to have any? The very same reason why you don't like the notion that you're poor in spirit. It makes us highly vulnerable and susceptible to difficulties in life. And we avoid that like the plague. We avoid it like the plague. Now, am I against savings? No. Jane and I have three million in a bank account just offshore in Jersey. I think it's three pounds, isn't it? Three pounds. 
But in the economy of heaven, it's millions, it's millions. If a day can be like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day, then a pound can be a million pounds, can't it? In the economy of God. No. And um, I learned when we had nothing and had no money and we're not... I learned that my God... I learned without any effort from me, and I'm the one who makes the effort. Jane and I, we know this. I will not ever stop making the effort. That's a problem. I know that when we came out of the bleakest point of life as a married couple, and we looked at our bank account, and we had over 30-something thousand in it that we didn't earn, that people gave us. None of you, by the way, but I'll forgive you. I'm kidding. People found us, gave us, and God blessed us through all kinds of weird ways. I didn't have to lift a finger, although my fingers were well lifted. I didn't have to make it happen. He made it happen. Why? Because I genuinely had a need. If you're avoiding having a need, you are not going to have a supply. You need to know that your need is your friend and not your enemy. You see, what's happening is the culture of our world has seeped into the culture of the church, and we don't want to be needy. The New Testament church were the neediest people on the planet, and God did exceptional things through them. The end-time church would be the neediest people on the planet then, and God would do exceptional. Um, we're somewhere in between those two things, so get in touch with your need and stop trying to avoid it. Anyway, I hope you like the Vineyard Church next week you visit. <laughs> the fourth thing is power. 2 Corinthians 12 verse 9 says, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Notice it doesn't say strength. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness. So that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And finally, protection. 2 Corinthians 4 verses 8 to 9. This is what it says about those who come to God recognizing that their soul is poor. We are hard pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but somehow not in despair. Persecuted, yeah but never forsaken, struck down, but couldn't possibly be destroyed. That's what God does. That's who God is. Now, I want you to stand for me, please. I want you to say this out loud with me. I don't normally do this, but I think there's importance in declaring some things. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed am I when I recognize, realize, and embrace the truth that I really am poor in spirit. My disadvantage is to the advantage of God. Because I need him more. I want him more. I seek him more. And I end up loving him more. Mine 
is the kingdom of God. Once again, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Repeat this. Heavenly Father, help me get in touch with the reality of my spiritual poverty. I don't want to move away from the cross of Christ. I want to move in the fullness of that cross. I am a sinner. It's the truth. And without you, I have no hope. Take over my life, Jesus. Make this real for me, that I may always live in the reality of my poverty. For where I am poor, you are rich. Where I am weak, you are strong. Where I lack, you are the God of abundance. Pressed down, shaken up, and overflowing in my life. One more time. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Just lift your hands for me, please. Lord, I know that what we ask today is not something a human being could ever conjure up or make real. And what we're asking for is conviction. We pray, Lord God, that by your spirit, you will convict us of our need and our desperate state before you. I ask you, God, not to do that, to make us feel bad. That's not your heart. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But without conviction, Lord God, there can be no transformation. And so I ask, Lord God, that you would convict us. Holy Spirit, will you convict us? Convict us of our need for Jesus. We say that Jesus is more than enough for us, but we keep adding everything else to the list. A good job, a nice wife, a fancy car, a good home. Which is the truth, God? Are you enough for me? Are you truly enough for me? Lord, I refuse to use you as a launching pad for my career. I refuse, Lord, to subject your kingdom to that kind of sinister and indeed unsacred approach. This is not about me getting the advantage. This is about me knowing I'm already advantaged because I have a disadvantage. And that disadvantage is I am a sinner who needs to be saved. Lord Jesus, come. Come amongst your church. And Lord, I know that this moment will pass and people will go back to their lives and all of that is great. But I know that you never sleep or slumber. And I pray, God, you keep pressing in on this truth for all of these great things that are available to us that are the truth of our world, that somehow even in the state of poverty we find ourselves in our soul, we can experience the great blessing and fullness of the God who delights in us. Lord, for that, it's worth every discomfort. It's worth, Father God, every criticism I may get. And it's worth, Father God, allowing myself to be exposed in this way so that you can use it to your advantage. Lord God, not one in this room is perfect. Not one, Lord God, has it all together. But you, God, you see and you know who we really are. And you love us and you delight in us. And when we come to the recognition of that, 
everything becomes available to us. The kingdom, righteousness, peace, and joy. Lord, thank you for my disadvantage. Thank you, Jesus, that I am disadvantaged. But Lord, I thank you that there is an advantage to that, that I will spend the rest of eternity discovering. Now bless us in the name of the Father, in the precious Son, and indeed the work and ministry of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a great week, church.